everyone. You're listening to Health Affairs This Week. I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Rob Lott. Uh, this is the weekly podcast where the editors at Health Affairs talk about health policy news and stories that we've been following throughout the week. But before we do, in case you missed it, earlier this week, we announced the grand prize winner of our first ever You're a Health Policy Wonk If Summer Contest. We got over 100 submissions, and you can read them all on the Health Affairs website. But congratulations to Lin Chuang, who's a PhD candidate at UCLA, and she sent us the winning entry. She says, you're a health policy wonk if your toddler tells you their sick stuffed animal needs to see the doctor and your first concern is if they are overutilizing care. <laughs> so, so good, wonky and adorable. Uh, so I know I'm already looking forward to next year's contest, but be sure to go check out all the honorable mentions on our website and use the promo code HEALTHWONKLIFE for $30 off an unlimited or insider membership now until July 16th. I love that, Leslie. Health wonk life. Yeah. Really got to embrace it, right? Um, anyway, one other quick shout out um, to the brand new health policy brief published today, July 13th, all about the concept of underemployment and what it means for workers' health and well-being. This is a uh, short clear overview exploring the evidence at the intersection of these two factors. And um, readers can find it on our website in the briefs section, where it's one of literally hundreds of archived briefs freely accessible to readers who um, can really turn to them if they need to get up to speed about really um, any (laughs) key topic in health policy. It's probably there. Um, So check it out. Now, enough of these preliminaries, Leslie. What are we talking about today? Yeah, so today we're talking about a new run of proposals designed to protect consumers from facing unanticipated costs when they need health care. And I'm guessing you've heard by now, Rob, but the White House has fully embraced its economic agenda in recent weeks with the term Bidenomics. And the president has talked uh, really extensively about cracking down on junk fees as part of that agenda. And we're talking about those hidden fees and additional surcharges that you might encounter unexpectedly when you're dealing with banks and airlines, for example. But the Biden administration is also looking at ways to shield consumers from junk health plans, along with surprise medical bills and medical debt stemming from third-party medical credit cards. Um, And part of the reason surprise medical costs are so common, according to the White House, is because of loopholes in the law. So now the administration is moving to bring on additional oversight, and we'll talk more about what each of these policy items entails, starting with these so-called junk insurance plans. So what are we talking about here, Rob? Well, Leslie, uh, if you will, let me take you back uh, to a, a long time ago, a galaxy far, far away, perhaps. I'm talking about the commercial insurance market before the Affordable Care Act became law in 2010. Okay, so let's say it's 2005. Uh, I'm there. Bush, yeah. <laughs> Bush Jr. was president. No one had heard of this small, brand new app called YouTube. Mariah Carey topped the charts with We Belong Together, and priv- the private insurance market was a little bit of a wild, wild west. So plans could refuse to cover you if you had a uh, pre existing condition. They could exclude coverage for certain conditions. Let's say you were diabetic. It was perfectly normal for a plan to say they'd cover most of your medical needs, except, of course, anything 
related to your diabetes. Other plans would say, fine, we'll cover you, but because you have this medical history, we're going to charge you this exorbitant premium and impose a mammoth deductible. Plans also often impose annual caps on how much they would pay out in coverage. And by the way, those caps would be pretty, pretty low. So hit the cap and you're on your own. Um, this was really a huge problem for consumers at the time. But it's something the Affordable Care Act tried to solve, right? Yeah, the Affordable Care Act basically said insurance plans had to cover um, the suite of so-called essential benefits for everyone, regardless of any pre-existing conditions. It did away with annual caps. It said no one could be denied coverage. In other words, it said that insurance plans had to be comprehensive. Otherwise, it wasn't really insurance at all. Okay, so thank you, ACA. Problem solved, right? Well, almost, Leslie. Um, those rules have made a huge difference for millions of Americans, but uh, there is a loophole, as there often is, in the form of so-called short-term limited duration health insurance plans. And these are largely exempt from federal and many state-level consumer protections, including all those protections we uh, just described outlined in the Affordable Care Act. Um, in the past, these plans were truly short-term, think like less than a year, just a few months. Um, but um, after failing at full repeal, the Trump administration continued to chip away at the ACA's protections. And as part of that, they changed the rules, allowing short-term plans to offer coverage, including uh, renewals and extensions of up to three years. And what kind of effect did that have? Well, it really uh, opened the door for these plans to grow and thrive. Some data suggests that the number of individuals in short-term limited duration insurance plans uh, more than doubled between 2018 and 2019. And the CBO believes that an estimated 1.5 million people could currently be enrolled in these plans that really have free reign to ignore the law's prohibition on annual caps coverage exclusions and denials for pre-existing conditions. And my sense is, Rob, that many of those people may not even realize they're in these plans that fall outside of the ACA's protections. Exactly, Leslie. The people selling these plans are, uh, are pretty good at playing up the low annual premiums uh, that these plans charge while keeping all those other details, including the limitations on coverage, uh, keeping all that in the fine print. And so you ended up with a lot of people left kind of high and dry when they actually needed the coverage they were counting on. And no surprise then that uh, President Biden last week uh, called these plans a, quote, scam uh, in the course of introducing a new set of proposed rules um, that would limit short-term duration plans to a truly short-term duration, just three months or with an extension up to four months. Uh, so that's quite a change from the three years that junk plans can offer today as a result of changes made by the previous administration. Yeah, and what about the marketing piece that you talked about? Are there any new, are there any changes or any new protections happening there? Yeah, under the proposed rules, plans would also be required to provide consumers with a clear disclaimer that explains the limits of their benefits, including to existing consumers currently enrolled in these plans. But uh, Leslie, junk insurance isn't the only scam out there. Can you tell us uh, about another big piece of the market the administration is trying to get under control? Sure. And it has to do with medical credit cards, loans, and other financial products 
that people use to pay for healthcare. Um, there's been a ton of growth in this industry over the last several years. And so policymakers and watchdog groups are starting to look at how the use of these products is occurring within the kind of the bigger context of medical billing, insurance practices, and healthcare access overall. So can you ex- explain what these products are and what is the market for them? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so there are different kinds of medical credit cards and other specialty products out there, which are mostly marketed to patients through their healthcare providers, but serviced through um, big financial institutions. They've gotten a lot more desirable because they're they're aggressively and strategically marketed, but also due to the fact that you know a lot of patients have trouble paying for medical care because these out of pocket costs have just gotten so high. And even though insurance coverage, you know, has has gone up over the last two decades or so, a lot of medical services like fertility treatments, um, dental procedures might not be covered. So increasingly, people are looking to financial alternatives, including different forms of credit to cover both routine and unexpected healthcare costs. A consumer financial report published a few months back found that patients used specialty medical credit cards or loans like this to finance almost $23 billion in healthcare expenses between 2018 and 2020. So we know that more people are choosing them. And what are some of the pitfalls or issues that patients are running into, given that it sounds like the reach of these products has uh, grown substantially? Yeah, these products, which, you know, they're generally more expensive than other forms of credit, have uh, mostly replaced the informal payment plans offered to patients directly by their doctor's offices. And for various reasons, patients who use them might find themselves responsible for things like fees, interest charges, adverse financial outcomes that they just didn't anticipate. And in some cases, they might not have known that they were eligible for financial assistance or charity care that hospitals may be required to offer under federal or state law. And it's really these concerns about the patient experience and the downstream consequences. Um, this is part of the reason we're seeing this push now from the Biden administration to understand whether healthcare provider and uh, third-party efforts to encourage consumers to sign up for medical credit cards are operating outside of existing consumer protections and, in effect, breaking the law. And this is a joint effort, right? Right. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, together with the Department of Health and Human Services and the Treasury Department, issued a formal request asking people to share information about the impact of medical payment products, both on consumers and on the healthcare system. They're wanting to understand basically how and when patients are offered these products, what information patients are given, and how they make decisions about using these products. Are there particular healthcare provider types that offer these products? more frequently. You know, another aspect they're trying to understand through this public comment period is whether using medical payment products undermines patients' medical billing rights, including their rights under the No Surprises Act to dispute surprise bills. You know, how frequently do patients find billing errors after signing up for a credit card? Some consumers report being told that they couldn't dispute inaccurate bills that are put on these medical payment products, even if that bill should have been covered by insurance. So that's something I can see getting a lot of attention as we learn more about the scope of the issue, including how many patients are using medical payment products to pay bills that could be defrayed by lower cost alternatives. And I think, you know, this has significant implications for patients, for healthcare providers and consumer financial products in the medical industry going forward. 
Uh, thanks, Leslie. That's a really interesting uh, proposal there. Uh, we're nearly out of time, but I did want to mention two other areas that the administration is tackling with these proposed rules. One is an effort to stop insurers from abusing so-called in-network designations. And for our listeners, I'm putting my fingers in the air to indicate air quotes here in-network uh, because really what we're talking about um, is a loophole that allows health plans to contract with hospitals without actually counting them as in-network and therefore subjecting consumers to higher payments for hospital visits. And the administration is basically saying, you can't do that. Either the hospital is in-network and you pay in-network rates or uh, they're not and therefore subject to surprise billing protections. The other item I wanted to mention from the administration's proposal um, is their effort to clarify how facility fees work. So these are uh, the fees, Leslie, as you know, when you go to a hospital, in addition to getting charged for the doctor's time and efforts, you also typically get a facility fee from the institution. This is basically the hospital saying it's not cheap to keep the lights on. It's not cheap to keep our emergency room open 24-7. And so we're going to charge for that too. But of course, some providers and health plans have used these fees as another workaround to charge uh, high prices, avoid price transparency, and um, surprise billing protections as well. So in response, the administration is now saying that providers have to make information about these fees publicly available to consumers, and health plans have to be clear about what they're going to cover uh, when it comes to facility fees. Great. Lots of changes on the way for sure. Uh, and for more in-depth analysis and coverage of some of the items that we talked about on today's episode, uh, you can check out Health Affairs Forefront, where we published two articles earlier this week from Georgetown University professors and policy experts, Manasa Kona and Sabrina Corlett. And of course, we'll put the link in the show notes. And thanks to everyone for listening. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to Health Affairs This Week wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Leslie. See you thanks. next week. Yeah.